God, I want to experience your peace. I want to experience your joy. I want you to possess every facet of my life as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Make yourself at home. Then the Holy Spirit starts meddling in your social life, in your sex life, in your serving life, in your life as a student. You say, well, I didn't mean that. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Buford, South Carolina's Community Bible Church. We have entered chapter 8 of our study of the book of Romans, and this chapter is claimed by many to be their favorite section of the entire Bible. In it, a Christian's redemption from the bondage of sin is declared, the power of the Holy Spirit is proclaimed, and the extent of God's love is revealed. As we pick up today, Pastor Brogy asks the question, have you ever been set free by Jesus Christ? Recently, I sat down and shared the plan of salvation with an individual. And I explained to him what an incredible offense his sin was. Not per se because he was a bigger sinner than anyone else, but because next to a sinless person, next to one who is infinitely holy, Jesus Christ explained as the glory of God, we all fall short of that glory. But I also explained to him how all of the offenses he had done against God were laid on Jesus Christ, that he bore in his own body upon the cross our sin, and that while he deserved eternal judgment, while he deserved eternal condemnation, Jesus Christ came to take that condemnation. And in a moment, he saw it, and he said, I need this, I want it. And he bowed his head and he prayed the sinner's prayer. And in a moment of time, God, the Holy Spirit, who'd been working on him, came to live inside of him. In Jesus' words, he was born a second time. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, the Father, made him the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. The one who had never sinned, who knew no sin, became sin on your behalf there on the cross. How many sins did you committed when Jesus died? Not one except the sin you committed in Adam. In one sense, in time and space, it was all in the future. But God saw every wrong, unrighteous, wicked, evil, thought, deed, or action you would ever commit, and he laid that sin on Christ. The one who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what you need to have a relationship with God, to go to heaven. You need God's righteousness in Christ. If this uh, handkerchief is Jesus Christ and this watch is me, I am in Christ, so when God sees Carl Brogy, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Now, there was a time when I was outside of Christ, dirty, stained, guilty, separated. And if I died that way or Christ came back finding me that way, I would have become forever that way. But while my body was physically alive and religious, I was spiritually dead. But when I trusted Christ as my Savior and I was wrapped in his righteousness, for the first time ever, God the Holy Spirit could come and indwell me. He could not come and indwell me when I was still stained and separated and my sin had not been paid for justly. The wages of sin is death. Works cannot save you. Number one, they can't remove the stain of sin. And number two, they can't meet the penalty of sin, which is death. Now, if you want to pay for your own sin, you can, but it will take you an eternity. But an infinite God in a finite period of time there on Golgotha paid your eternal debt so that you could have a new birth, so that you could be made alive. And so in a split second, 
He was born again. It happened simultaneously according to the word of God. So look again in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then he further explains in verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now I want you to notice here in verses 2 and 3, Paul speaks of three laws. He just mentioned the first one at the end of verse 2, the law of sin and death. Now, what is the law of sin and death? It is simply this. If you've had only one birth, if you've only had a natural birth, then you will be ruled by sin in this life and you will die physically, but not just physically, you will die eternally. It is a law of God. God runs the physical universe with certain natural laws and he runs the spiritual universe with certain spiritual laws. And if you have only been born once, you will die twice. The Bible is very, very clear. And so a man who is conceived in sin, who has an inclination towards sin and therefore does sin, is destined to die. That is the law of sin and death. Now let me ask you, have you ever experienced that law and could you verify it by raising your right hand that you've experienced the law of sin and death? Every hand should fly up because unless you think you're sinless, you've experienced the law of sin and death. But there is a second law that he mentions here in verse 2, if you will notice. He speaks of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now you will see that this is a small L. In the Greek New Testament, there are no capitals or lowercase letters. The manuscripts we have are either all uppercase letters or all lowercase letters. And so the translator needs to discern, is this a small spirit referring to your human spirit? Or is this the Holy Spirit? Is this a small L referring to a principle of law? Or is this referring to God's holy law, what we call the Bible? Well, here again, like in chapter 3, he's speaking here about a principle of law, the principle of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, what is that? You see, when you are liberated, when you have a second birth from above, there is a new spiritual principle that begins to operate in your life, and it's called here the law of life in Christ Jesus. Think of it in this way. Think of it in the physical realm for just a moment. There's the law of gravity that informs me that there is a force of attraction between any two objects in the universe. So if I hold my Bible and I let it go, the law of gravity will bring it down to the earth because that is a physical law that God wrote into the physical universe. But when I climbed in an airplane 10 days ago and I flew from the Ukraine all the way to Savannah, Georgia, there was a different law that was functioning. It was the law of aerodynamics, and I'm glad it functioned all the way without quitting on me. Now, the law of gravity would say to that airplane, come down. But the law of aerodynamics would say, come on up. And so as we moved down that runway and we got faster and faster, and as he adjusted the wings, the law of aerodynamics took over and superseded the law of gravity. The law of gravity was still there. But the law of aerodynamics was ruling over the law of gravity. Well, just as there are certain physical laws that govern the physical universe, so there are certain spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. And so as you walk in the Spirit, the law of the life in Christ Jesus makes you free from the law of sin and death. But suppose on that airplane ride said, man, this is a long trip. I am sick and tired of it. I'm getting out. And I force the, air, the door open and I jump out to get some fresh air. Well, listen, if they ever found me, or if they did and scraped my body off the ground, I'd have no one to blame but myself. 
Well, the same is true in the spiritual realm. You don't have to live by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. If you choose to sin and rebel against God and not to be filled with the spirit, then the law of sin and death will take over. Now, living the Spirit-filled life doesn't mean that your sin nature is eradicated any more that as you fly in an airplane, the law of gravity is gone. But in God's economy, there is a new law for the child of God that Paul is going to go into great detail in in this eighth chapter that he wants to live for us to live by. Now, notice there's a third law here. There is the law of sin and death. There's the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But there is also what he calls here the law of Moses. Uh, or verse 3 says, for what the law? What law is he talking about? The law of Moses. Now, you will see it is capitalized. That's an interpretive decision on the part of the translators. But every English translation, every language I can think of capitalizes it. Why? Because he's not talking about a principle of law. He's talking about God's holy law, the Mosaic law. And the context is plain. For what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, what is it that the law could not do? The law could never set us free from the law of sin and death. The Old Testament law says, do this and you will live. The law demanded perfection and none of us were perfect. No one could perfectly keep God's holy law. The law, weak as it was, through the flesh. Remember, we've already seen twice over, really three times over in the book of Romans, that the law was not given to save us, but to reveal us. If I have a 10-foot pole and I stand next to it, the pole doesn't make me 10 feet. It just shows me that I'm not 10 feet. When I look into the law of God, it doesn't make me holy. It shows me that I am not holy. The weakness is not in the law. The weakness is in me. The law was not given to save. The law was given to condemn you. When you look into a mirror, you see your face is dirty. When you look into God's law, you see your soul is dirty. So he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And I want you to notice at least three things that God did to solve the problem concerning his holy, righteous standard, what Paul here is calling the law. First, the Bible says he did something in sending his own son. You see that there in that verse? Sending his own son. Now that verse underscores the eternality of Christ. Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, and a host of other cults teach that Jesus was created. The Bible teaches Messiah would come from eternity past, that he had no beginning or end, that there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. Jesus Christ had at one point in his life no human body, but he is the eternal God, and God sent him into the world. Now, interesting, the word God in Scripture, usually when you see it in the New Testament, it is a reference to God the Father, but not exclusively. It's the Greek word theos. Yet, it can be applied, the same word, and the context makes it plain, to other members of the Trinity. We've already read this morning from Acts 5, you've not lied to, uh, to men, Ananias, you've lied to God. He's very plain. He refers to the Holy Spirit as theos, same word, God the Lord Jesus. In Titus chapter 2, we're told that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 
In Greek, the way words are structured, there's no question as to what they are modifying by the way the, the words end. God and Savior in the Greek New Testament, as plain in the English Bible, modifies Christ Jesus. So there, the Lord Jesus is called God. The Spirit is called God. The Father in the verse before us is called God. And we're not surprised by that because each member of the Trinity is equal. And so God the Son equal with God the Father, left the fellowship and splendor of heaven, and as an act of his own free will, he submitted himself to the Father's world when he came into this world. And he solved the problem of the standard of God's law. But secondly, I want you to notice how God was sent. We call this the incarnation. Uh, the word incarnation is from a Latin word, incarno. There is a fourth century Latin translation of the Bible. And a lot of the terms that we cherish, theological terms, we get actually from that Latin translation. In, the prefix has come directly in the English, carno or carnivorous is flesh. So when we speak of incarno, we're speaking of God coming in flesh. Now look at what verse 3 plainly says. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is a significant expression, and you want to know what it says and what it does not say. It does not say that Jesus was sent in sinful flesh, because the flesh of the virgin-conceived Son of God was sinless. In Hebrews 4, it says He was without sin. We just read in 2 Corinthians 5, He knew no sin. In 1 John 3, it says, In Him was no sin. And so Paul does not say He came in sinless flesh, because the flesh of the Lord Jesus was sinless. But notice also it does not say he came in the likeness of flesh. That's docetism. That's a first century heresy where they deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. No, Paul said he came in the likeness of sinful flesh because the humanity of Christ was real and at the same time it was sinless. It was both real and sinless simultaneously. And what precisely did the Father do? He sent the eternal Son with no beginning or end into the world. And He did this through a supernatural birth without a human fa father where He could take on sinless humanity. But third, I want you to notice from verse 3, He sent the Son as an offering for sin. The Bible says He came in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That is, in the flesh of the Lord Jesus, that was both real and sinless, God condemned sin. The judgment you deserve, God laid on His Son, Jesus Christ. This is, in essence, salvation by grace. This verse is the John 3.16 of the book of Romans. So truth number one, to understanding your new life in the Spirit. And these first four verses are just an introduction to what he's going to cover in the first 27. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Truth number two of our new life in the Spirit is there is a wonderful liberation that the Father has set us free from the law of sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ, allowing us to be indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Truth number three for our new life in the Spirit, there is an exciting obligation. Now in verse three, Paul has told us how God liberated us. Now in verse four, as we bring this in for a close, why God liberated us. Why did God send His Son? Not just so that we could be justified, but also that we could be sanctified. Notice verse four, so that, Here's the reason, so that 
Listen carefully. Some of you are daydreaming and you're going to miss it and the devil wants you to miss it because he doesn't want you to walk in victory. And your mind is out there in outer space and what you're going to do this afternoon when you need to gird up your loins for action. Dad, if you want to have the kind of family God's called you to have, you have to be a man of God. You must be spirit-filled so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, in verse 4, there are three major truths about holiness. First, holiness is a major purpose for the death of the Lord Jesus. The ultimate reason that God sent His Son to die for you is not simply that you would not be condemned to hell, though that's part of the reason, but that you might live for His glory, that you might be conformed and shaped to the image of Jesus Christ, that God might be glorified. In Paul's words, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Secondly, we're, we learn in this verse that holiness consists in holy living. See, a lot of Christians today are existential and they measure their spirituality by the things they feel or the experiences they have. And they are quick to tell you about how God spoke to them and then they'll give this dictation about what God said, how dangerous. Or they'll tell you about some ecstatic utterance they had or some feeling they experienced. And in this day of experience-centered Christianity, we need to know how God defines holiness. And here it's defined as keeping the requirements of the law. And so this verse, of course, blows out antinomianism that we studied earlier in the fifth and sixth chapter. God has his moral law, and he expects us to obey it. But notice also from verse 4 that he speaks of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, I have those two little words, in us, circled in my Bible. And I hope you bring a Bible. If you don't have one, come Thursday night. We'll get you one. You need to bring a Bible. If you're going to become serious and really get ingrained in the Word of God, you need to carry a Bible, okay? And I want to encourage you in that as your pastor, that the Word of God might be fulfilled not by us, but in us. And that is important because he's describing something that is hugely different. He doesn't say by us, but in us. When we come down to verse 12, he will say, so then, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We no longer live according to the flesh, but we have a new obligation, as verse 4 indicates, to live according to the Spirit. And the only way for God to fulfill His law in us is for you to walk in the Spirit. You might want to underscore that word walk in your mind. Now, he's going to expand on it as we walk through this chapter, but let me give you a brief introduction using the rest of Scripture to define what it means to walk in the Spirit. Two key words. One is the word abandon. The second word is the word abide. Have you ever had guests in your home? And they come and you try to make everything nice and comfortable for them. I suppose nothing is more upsetting to have someone just show up at your door from out of town unexpected and you're not ready for them, and they find your house the way it normally is, you know? But um, no, if you know they're coming in advance, you, you, you try to make everything nice and ready for them. Maybe there's new sheets in the bed, or new towels in the guest bathroom, if you have one, or, or uh, there's new rugs on, on the bath floor, or there's extra special meats in the freezer, and you make everything nice, and they show up at the door, and you say, well, you just have to take us the way we are. You know, you know how we are sometimes, and we've all had guests, and we know what that's like. 
And you may even give them the keys to your car and say, listen, you come and go as you please. My house is your house. Just make yourself totally at home. Now, we think we mean that, but then we come home and we find our guest couple in the master bedroom. And they've got the roll-top desk up. And they've got it unlocked, and they're reading your old love letters, and they're finding out how, how much money you made last year, how much tax you paid, and how much money you gave to the church, and, and your hair begins to bristle in the back of your neck, and you say, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, what are you doing? Well, I'm just reading your old love letters. They're rather fascinating, Pastor. I'm checking out to see how much money you made, how much you gave to the church, and you know, uh, well, that's none of your business. Well, I don't understand, Pastor. You said your home is my home. You said I could come and go as I wish. You said just make yourself at home. And I wonder sometimes if we don't do that with God. We say, oh God, I want your magnificent rest. God, I want to experience your peace. I want to experience your joy. I want you to possess every facet of my life as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Make yourself at home. Then the Holy Spirit starts meddling in your social life, in your sex life, in your serving life, in your life as a student. You say, well, I didn't mean that. Come, Lord Jesus, take every part of this temple. And then he says, well, I want you to be available to share your faith. Well, God, I I can't do that. Or uh, I I want you to be available to tithe to the local church. Well, God, you know, I got a lot of bills. You know how it's like. And, And we tell the Holy Spirit one thing. But we really haven't given them every room. We haven't totally abandoned ourselves to Him. And Paul says, listen, we're not under obligation anymore to live to the flesh. God has given us a new obligation to live by the Holy Spirit. And so the first key word is the word abandon. The second key word underscored in the New Testament, if you're to walk in the Spirit, is the word abide. The requirement of the law, Paul says, will not be fulfilled by us, but in us. Now, let me see if I can illustrate. Uh, Here's a glove I got out of the nursery this morning. Follow carefully. Glove, pick up my Bible. Wait a minute. Give me a second here. Just be patient. Uh, Glove, wipe the sweat off my brow. Uh, Glove, wave at these people. You say, that's rather stupid, Pastor. I I know it is. Well, let me do something here if I can get my hand into this glove. My, I don't know how they do it in the nursery. Thank God I don't change diapers every Sunday. But uh, All right, glove, pick up my Bible. Glove, wipe the sweat off my brow. Glove, wave at these people. You say, Pastor, that's so stupid. That's not the glove. That's the man in the glove. That's exactly what God is saying. It's not the man. It's God in the man. It's God possessing you, living his life in and through you. You say, but I can't love that person. He's too hard to love. And God says, you're exactly right. You can't love him. In fact, apart from me, you can do nothing. But I want to love him through you. And so the man of God who walks in the Spirit of God lives a life of abandonment and a life of abiding. You could say it this way, whatever possesses the glove determines what the glove does and performs. Whoever activates the glove determines the activity of the glove. Or in the words of the Lord Jesus, I am the vine, 
You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And by the way, you will never hear the gloves say, well, I'll go alone today. I'll do it myself. No, and you'll never hear the glove complain, and you'll never hear the glove grit its teeth if it had some and say, oh, i got to change this nasty diaper. No, the, the glove just yields to the hand that is in it. And so Paul is underscoring three vital truths that describe our new obligation. Why we should be holy, what holiness is, and how it is to be obtained. The why of holiness is the death of God's Son. The, the, the what of holiness is obedience to God's law. That's how you measure true spirituality. And the how of holiness is not for the law to be accomplished by us, but in us by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've never been saved, if you don't have the assurance that if you drop dead in the seat you're in in the next five seconds that heaven is your home, then you're not trusting and relying upon the finished work of Christ to save you. And so you don't have, according to the Lord Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit living in you. He may be working on you. In fact, he's knocking on some of your doors this morning. And he's trying to convince you and woo you that your sin is offensive. He's trying to reveal to you that Christ really loves you, that he died for you. He's trying to give you the truth that will set you free from the law of sin and death. And set you free to a new life in the Spirit where God, in a way you never imagined, will become so real in your human heart. But you must call upon Christ in faith. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed this morning. Maybe you're here and there's a decision that you need to make about Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never been saved. I want to invite you right now in the quietness of your heart to come to the one who alone can save you. This church can't save you. You can't save yourself. Baptism can't save you. Some wild experience can't save you. Only Christ can save you. And you must trust in his death and resurrection to do that. He said, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. But you must take God at his word and call upon him in faith. That's what faith is, believing what God said. Whoever will call on the name of Christ will be saved. Believe in Him and you'll be saved. Would you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Thank you that the Father sent you from heaven to earth, that you died instead of me, that you died for me, that you took the very punishment my sin deserves. I recognize the evil that I've done against you. And I turn to you to forgive me and to change me, to make me a new creation. Lord Jesus, you said if I would call upon you, you would save me, and I call upon you now in faith. Father, help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, I know that there are many here who have already met Christ. But if the truth were known, they're not living for Christ. They're not abandoned to Him. They are more abandoned to the things of this world than they are to Him. They don't remember the last time they were alone, lingering in your presence, feeding on your word, using the instrument that the Spirit of God uses to sanctify us. And they're trying to live the Christian life in their own strength instead of abiding in Christ. Help us, each one of us, especially the fathers as heads of our homes, 
to lead not just in word but in deed. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. To listen again to this message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for Apple and Android devices. You can download it from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. Just look for Search the Scriptures with Dr. Carl Brogy. You can also listen to it on our website, searchthescriptures.org, or if you would prefer a CD or DVD copy, just call us at 877-787-7478. Today's program is entitled, The Blessing of Freedom. Tomorrow we begin a look at the blessing of the Spirit. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.